On a busy weekday morning in the winter of 1922, 31-year-old Hadley Richardson held her hat to her head as she passed through the gates of the Gare de Lyon. The infamous Paris railway station was bustling. She was traveling alone, off to meet her husband who had been away on business. She carried an overnight bag and a small suitcase filled with precious materials. A porter examined the woman's ticket and offered to help with her bags. She politely accepted and followed him to her seat. Once she was situated, Hadley worried that she didn't have enough provisions for the eight-hour ride ahead. She got up from her chair, leaving her suitcases behind. She wouldn't be gone for more than a few minutes. Hadley exited the train and quickly purchased a bottle of water and a small snack to get her through the long journey from France to Switzerland. She gathered her supplies and made her way back to the locomotive. But when she returned to her seat, her heart sank into her stomach. Her suitcase was no longer where she'd left it. She frantically hailed the porter, praying that the bag had simply been misplaced. The train pulled out of the station. Together, Hadley and the porter searched every car, but the suitcase was nowhere to be found. Hadley cried for the entire eight hours of that journey. She was terrified of telling her husband, Ernest Hemingway, that all of his works to date had been stolen due to her negligence. The contents of that suitcase would never resurface. And because of it, Hemingway suffered a traumatic loss, one that would inspire him to change the landscape of American literature. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're looking at the mystery behind Ernest Hemingway's lost manuscripts. In 1922, his wife packed a bag with every scrap of writing he'd composed to date. Then, the valise vanished without a trace. That unforgettable train ride would haunt Ernest and Hadley equally for the rest of their lives. Every one of Ernest's short stories, along with the beginning of his war memoir, went missing that November afternoon in 1922. No matter where they looked or what leads they followed, Hemingway never saw his manuscripts again. So instead, the hunt for his missing materials turned into a search inside of himself. Born in 1899, 
Ernest Hemingway was a child of the new century, raised in a period of rapid progress. Early on, his mother exposed him to a life of art and culture through her work as an opera singer and painter. His father, a successful doctor, introduced him to fishing and the great outdoors. Hemingway gained a strong sense of traditional masculinity as he was taught how to build a fire, hunt, and shoot a gun in his early years. But those weren't his only interests. In 1905, six-year-old Hemingway developed an affinity for literature. As soon as he learned to read, he devoured Robinson Crusoe and other tales of travel and adventure. By age 15, Hemingway began writing short stories of his own. He also developed an interest in becoming a reporter. But as high school graduation came closer, Hemingway opted not to go off to college. Instead, he wanted to be the hero of his own story and travel the world. So when World War I broke out and the U.S. joined the fight in 1917, 18-year-old Hemingway begged his parents to let him join the Army. The idea of seeing new countries while carrying a rifle sounded like a much more experiential form of education. But a childhood eye injury and the insistence of his parents kept Hemingway from fully achieving this goal. Instead, he went to work as a reporter for the Kansas City Star. Traveling around the state looking for a scoop was enough to satiate his wanderlust. With his first paid writing job secured, Hemingway was now making a total of $15 a week, the equivalent of $325 today. But the true value of the experience was the wisdom he received from his boss and mentor, C.G. Pete Wellington. The style sheet for the newspaper read, use short sentences, use short first paragraphs, use vigorous English, be positive, not negative. In fact, Hemingway continued to use this mentality throughout his career. The author took pride in his ability to be direct and unadorned while still succinctly conveying emotion. He enjoyed his work as a field reporter, honing his craft and witnessing stories firsthand. He often received invitations to ride around in police cars or the occasional ambulance. But deep down, he longed for a different kind of adventure. This inspired Hemingway to become a volunteer rescue driver for the Red Cross in Italy. He would essentially be an ambulance driver on World War I's front lines. In 1918, the 18-year-old finally set sail for Europe, encountering brutal weather and multiple bouts of seasickness along the way. One night, while stationed in Fosolta di Piave, Italy, Hemingway was overcome with a momentary fit of boredom and decided to take a stroll down to the battlefield. Soon, opposing soldiers began to fire, and Hemingway instinctively grabbed a gun and joined the battle. After a deafening blast, he was momentarily blinded. As his eyes refocused, he saw another of his fellow soldiers lying beside him, severely wounded. Hemingway tossed the comrade over his shoulder and carried the bloody commando back to their post. Along the way, Hemingway took a shot to the knee. Running on adrenaline, he made it back to the camp. During subsequent medical treatment, 
He had 28 pieces of shrapnel and a handful of machine gun bullets extracted from his limb. Then he documented every moment of the nearly deadly experience. In fact, Hemingway thoroughly recorded every day of combat. He filled journals with his experiences, vividly capturing the bloodshed, heartbreak, and heroism of his fellow soldiers. He hoped that the stories he recorded could one day be used to write a great novel. And so, Hemingway's diaries became some of his most prized possessions throughout his service. But when 20-year-old Hemingway returned home from the front lines in 1919, he struggled with feelings of loneliness. The usually charismatic young man now felt completely disconnected from the world around him. And it wasn't until 1920 that Hemingway finally began to feel like himself again. It wasn't because he changed, but because the world changed around him. The war was finally over, and ringing in the new year also meant ringing in a wave of cultural change. People were moving out of the suburbs and into cities. Commercial radio and motion pictures were laying the foundation for pop culture. Wages increased and prices fell, leading to a spike in consumerism. Women cut their hair. They smoked. They drank. They were sexually liberated. The average American had more money than ever before to spend, and they chose to do so on jazz, cars, ready-to-wear clothes, home appliances, and the illegal consumption of alcohol. They openly violated prohibition during lavish parties. In the fall of 1920, 21-year-old Ernest Hemingway met a beautiful woman eight years his senior at one of these ostentatious gatherings. 29-year-old Hadley Richardson was a talented musician who seemed to ooze sensuality. Hemingway was immediately drawn to her, and she was equally taken with him. In less than a year, the couple decided to marry and start their lives over in Paris, France. Paris in the 1920s was known as an artist's playground. The années folles, or crazy years in French, were coming to a head, which meant cultural, social, and artistic collaboration specifically among the youth. Here, the rent was lower, the booze was legal, and the young artists were not only accepted, but encouraged to experiment and thrive. It was exactly the environment where a burgeoning author like Ernest Hemingway could flourish. The newlyweds began their new lives in a meager apartment with no running water. They survived on Hadley's inheritance and Hemingway's job as a European correspondent for the Toronto Star. Hadley was Hemingway's biggest supporter. She believed, without a doubt, that Hemingway would become the novelist he aspired to be. She constantly validated his ideas, encouraged his ambitious endeavors, and even worked as his assistant throughout the process. The only person more confident in the author's skill was Hemingway himself. He truly believed he was destined for greatness. He was charismatic, intelligent, and open-minded. These qualities brought him into circles of some of the most influential artists of all time. Sherwood Anderson, a fellow novelist and a close friend of Hemingway, introduced him to his friend Gertrude Stein, 
a progressive novelist, poet, and playwright. In turn, Hadley and Hemingway were granted an invitation to 27 Rue de Fleurus, the infamous home of Gertrude, her partner Alice B. Toklas, and their notorious salon. There she hosted some of the most influential artists of the time. Picasso, Matisse, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Ezra Pound all drank and collaborated in her home. She began to mentor the young and hungry Hemingway, but felt that many of his short stories still had too much description and, unfortunately, none of it was very good. She pleaded with her new apprentice to start over and to concentrate on his work, and she gave thorough notes about how he could improve. He spent hours wandering the halls of Gertrude's home as she took a pen to his fiction. He stared at her collection of Picassos, Monets, and Cezannes. Hemingway wanted to be an author in the way that these men were painters. He respected their ability to succinctly define emotion through palette and tone. He only hoped his own literature would reflect a similar level of mastery. With this inspiration, he started writing a story about his time at war, but that novel never reached completion. He left it behind in Paris when his paper dispatched him to work from Switzerland. For months, Hemingway wrote Hadley letters begging her to come visit him. He finally convinced her when he was introduced to the famed investigative journalist Lincoln Steffens while working at the Peace Conference in Geneva. Steffens wanted to see Hemingway's work. It was the perfect opportunity to send for Hadley and his manuscripts. Before setting out, she packed every piece of Hemingway's writing into a suitcase, including the beginning of his war novel. Then, when she boarded that fateful train, all of Hemingway's manuscripts went missing. When Hemingway greeted his wife at the train station in Switzerland, Hadley was frantic. She searched for the right words and eventually told her husband that his life's work had been stolen. It was all her fault. At first, Hemingway laughed at the ridiculous claim. After all, he had carbon copies of his compositions back in Paris. But Hadley tearfully confessed that she'd raided every corner of his office. She'd brought everything she could possibly find, including the carbons. In a fit of panic and disbelief, Hemingway raced back to Paris, hoping that it wasn't true. But when he arrived at their apartment, he discovered that Hadley's remarks were correct. Years of hard work and creativity were lost in an instant. It was as if a piece of Hemingway died with the loss of those manuscripts. The author felt that he had nothing left to show for himself, nothing left that he was proud of. He declared that he would never write again. Coming up, Hemingway puts out a reward for his lost materials and is forced to reinvent himself. Now back to the story. In 1922, 23-year-old Hemingway was on assignment in Geneva, Switzerland, and invited his 31-year-old wife, Hadley, to visit. She gathered all of his previous works, only to lose them during the train ride over. The couple had plans to travel on to Chambly, Switzerland after their time in Geneva. But according to a stamp in his passport, 
Hemingway returned to Paris on December 3rd to search for the lost material. He tore through his apartment, frantically checking every cabinet and drawer in the home. But Hadley had packed it all. The writer later recounted his emotions around this loss in a short story titled A Strange Country. He claimed, I felt almost as though I could not breathe when I saw there really were no folders with originals, nor folders with typed copies, nor folders with carbons. To pour salt in the wound, Hadley had also packed all of his stationery, pens, pencils, envelopes, and postage coupons. He later joked that Hadley was trying to put me out of business. A week after Hemingway's tragic loss, his colleagues Lincoln Steffens and Guy Hickok traveled to Paris to help him investigate the theft. They searched the city's lost and found bureaus and repeatedly checked in with Guerre de Lyon. After hitting multiple dead ends, Hemingway's friends encouraged him to put an ad in the newspaper. But William Byrd, a fellow journalist, told Hemingway that it wouldn't be worth the cost of running the notice unless he planned to offer a substantial reward. Hemingway proceeded with the recommendation, but his finances were tight. His reward of 150 francs, equivalent to $150 today, wasn't enough to entice anyone to return the stolen valise. Steffens eventually sat the author down and told him, I'm afraid this stuff is lost, Hem. Hemingway succumbed to defeat and gave up on finding the lost manuscripts. But moving on was incredibly difficult. He turned to some of the new friends he'd made in Paris for comfort. One of those companions was fellow American expat, poet, and critic Ezra Pound. In January of 1923, 24-year-old Hemingway wrote to 38-year-old Ezra looking for guidance. He said, I suppose you heard about the loss of my juvenilia. You naturally would say good, etc. But don't say it to me. I ain't yet reached that mood. Ezra tried to brighten Hemingway's dark mindset, framing the event as an act of God. He believed that an artist's early work was meant to be forgotten. Ezra advised Hemingway to recreate whatever was worth salvaging from memory. But Hemingway had a hard time accepting this advice, considering his most prized piece was a novel reflecting upon his time at war. His recollections simply wouldn't suffice to recreate those intimate details he'd already started to repress. In an effort to re-inspire the author, Ezra invited Hadley and Hemingway to his home in Rapallo, Italy, in the early spring of 1923. The retreat was supposed to encourage Hemingway, but he failed to accomplish anything new during the trip. The legendary author felt he was hitting rock bottom. He was certain that this was the end of his short-lived writing career. What he didn't realize was there was one piece of his old writing still to be discovered, a letter that actually held the key to getting the author back on his feet. In the spring of 1923, a short story titled My Old Man had been returned to Hemingway from a magazine editor, along with a rejection letter. The envelope was buried deep in a pile of old mail, still unopened in Hemingway's Paris apartment. 
until he returned home and reviewed his pending correspondences. As a last-ditch effort, he shared the piece with an editor from New England who happened to be seeking fiction for an annual compilation. The editor loved the story so much that he went on to publish it. My Old Man was included in the best short stories of 1923. Finally, Hemingway was taking control of his destiny. In 1924, he was ready to put his lost manuscripts behind him and become the artist he wanted to be. His idea of starting over meant leaving his career in journalism behind. He spent days on end at Gertrude Stein's home, participating in her salon. Which meant that he began to drink. A lot. It's unclear whether this was to get over his loss or to connect with his new friends. Possibly both. But one thing was certain. Hemingway's work was improving under the influence of alcohol. At least now he had confidence in his writing. Hemingway's portfolio expanded quickly over the next year. He was now a full-fledged member of Gertrude Stein's Club of Artists, which she dubbed the Lost Generation. This described those who left their homes in the U.S. and came of age following the First World War. Stein's Saturday evening dinner parties were a melting pot of Hungarian painters, British noblemen, French academics, and German scholars. The Stein Salon became a hotbed for cultural conversation and political debate. The energy was frantic, and the heated yet liberating discussions would go until sunrise. Painter Pablo Picasso's high-pitched laugh would echo through the halls as author F. Scott Fitzgerald shared his fondest memories from Princeton. Artist Henri Matisse could be seen smoking a pipe in front of his infamous Lady with a Hat while chatting with James Joyce, who boasted about the success of his novel Ulysses, published two years prior for the first time. Naturally, Hemingway was tantalized by the company. And when Gertrude Stein wasn't hosting one of her avant-garde drug-fueled overnights, she was helping the 25-year-old rewrite his lost war novel. He didn't just recreate the novel, but he surpassed the manuscript that had gone missing three years prior. Part fiction and part memoir, A Farewell to Arms, published in 1929, is a story of a young paramedic in the Italian army who falls in love with an English nurse. Hemingway later claimed that he wouldn't have been able to expertly craft a farewell to arms if he hadn't had to push himself through the loss of his portfolio. It also didn't hurt that Gertrude Stein coached him through his early drafts, pushing him out of his comfort zone. The more time Hemingway spent with Gertrude in her salon, the more desperate he was to maintain his bohemian lifestyle. He rented a small room away from his apartment at 39 Rue Descartes. This way, he could be away from Hadley and their young child, free to work without distractions. But he also avoided his wife even when he wasn't working. In fact, Hadley and Hemingway's relationship had never been the same since that suitcase was stolen at the Gare de Lyon. Whenever the topic arose, Hemingway told Hadley he had forgiven her and the loss was for the best. 
But she wasn't convinced that her husband had fully put the event behind them. Soon, Hadley became more aware of her husband's wandering eye. She noticed that he had become more flirtatious. She feared that because she'd broken his trust, he was now looking for companionship with other women. In truth, Hemingway did seem to harbor some unconscious resentment. His anger coupled with Hadley's growing guilt and paranoia proved a potent toxin to their marriage. In December of 1925, Hemingway met a friend of Hadley's, 30-year-old Pauline Pfeiffer. He seduced her. In early 1926, Hadley learned of her husband's affair. Three months later, the couple separated. Hadley told Hemingway she would grant him the divorce under one condition. He and Pauline needed to spend a hundred days apart. So Pauline moved back to Arkansas and Hemingway fell into a dark period of his life. His torment stemmed mainly from the fact that he was in love with both of these women. But Hadley only reminded him of the work that had gone missing, a chapter of his life completely erased. And for possibly the first time, suicidal thoughts began to surface. He self-medicated with copious amounts of liquor. A hundred days later, Hemingway reunited with Pauline in Paris, and he got his divorce from Hadley. Perhaps the couple would have stayed together had it not been for their excruciating guilt and repressed anger. Instead, the loss of the manuscripts caused their marriage to burst at the seams. But the divorce was just the start of Hemingway's mental spiral. Coming up, other materials from Hemingway's past resurface and modern-day authors craft their own fictional theories about the lost valise. Now, back to the story. After losing years of early work during a train trip, Ernest Hemingway grappled with the loss. Even after he pushed himself to new literary heights, he nursed resentment against his wife Hadley, who'd misplaced the manuscripts. Four years after the loss, in January 1927, 35-year-old Hadley and 27-year-old Hemingway divorced. By May, Hemingway had settled into his new life with Pauline Pfeiffer. His divorce from Hadley had meant erasing the final piece of his past, but the memories still lingered. He carried the painful images of war, the sting of his lost work, and the love he'd had to sacrifice in order to move on. Drinking allowed him to funnel that trauma onto the page. By the end of the decade, the legendary author had published three full-length novels, including Farewell to Arms, with the help of Gertrude Stein. But his constant drinking meant he was also repeating old mistakes. Before leaving Paris in 1927, 28-year-old Hemingway stored two giant trunks full of manuscripts in the basement of the Ritz Hotel. The author completely forgot about the sentimental scribblings and left them behind as he moved to Kansas City and eventually Key West, Florida with Pauline. But in 1928, Hemingway received news that his father had died of suicide. The artist felt as though his world was ripped from under him. It wasn't long before Hemingway, too, grappled with thoughts of self-harm. 
His drinking spiraled out of control and affected some of his most cherished relationships. He was exhibiting the same bad behavior as after the loss of his manuscripts, only now the consequences were more extreme. His friendship with Gertrude Stein fell apart when he insulted their mutual friend Sherwood Anderson in his book, The Torrents of Spring. After burning bridges with the author and the other members of her salon, Hemingway continued to destroy his closest relationships. In 1937, while covering the war in Spain, 38-year-old Hemingway cozied up to another fellow journalist, 32-year-old Martha Gellhorn. In 1940, he divorced Pauline and married Martha. That same year, Hemingway published his smash hit, For Whom the Bell Tolls, placing him at the height of his fame. In 1944, 45-year-old Hemingway was on business in London when he met 36-year-old Mary Walsh. Mary would be his fourth wife, replacing Martha in 1946. It seemed that Hemingway never got over his fear of betrayal, perhaps stemming back to when Hadley lost that suitcase. He was constantly on the defense, afraid to let his guard down or trust any of his wives or girlfriends. But in 1956, a forgotten artifact resurfaced from Hemingway's past, delivering a bit of good news. While passing through Paris, he decided to visit his old haunt, the Ritz Hotel. The manager politely approached Hemingway during his lunch. He asked the author if he was aware that they had been storing a trunk of his belongings in the basement for all these years. It had been three decades since the items had crossed Hemingway's mind. The trunk was delivered up to the manager's office. With tears in his eyes, Hemingway sifted through the material that he had somehow completely forgotten. Inside were clothes, memos, notes, receipts, old bets, dozens of letters, but most importantly, two diaries filled with memories of his time in Paris. A dormant piece of the author came alive that afternoon. Perhaps this discovery gave Hemingway a taste of the closure that he'd so desperately sought. The recovered materials from the Ritz inspired Hemingway to begin his Parisian memoir titled a movable feast. The book was one of the last works that Hemingway ever penned. Around 1959, 51-year-old Mary Walsh and 60-year-old Hemingway retired to Ketchum, Idaho, where he could finally live a quiet, suburban life. But in 1961, Hemingway began to suffer from paranoia. The artist believed that the FBI was ransacking his home and following him about town. This behavior forced Mary to admit him to the Mayo Clinic, where he was treated with electroconvulsive therapy. When he emerged, Hemingway's paranoia had subsided, but now the author was unable to remember much of anything from his past. Those lost manuscripts, his love for Hadley, the brutal images of war and the decades of insatiable wanderlust, it all felt like a distant dream. He was now completely numb to the past, never able to write again. On July 2nd, 1961, three days after his last release from the Mayo Clinic, 61-year-old Hemingway pulled a shotgun off the wall 
and entered the foyer of his home. He placed the firearm to his temple and pulled the trigger, taking his own life. Hemingway died that warm July afternoon without ever knowing what had happened to his stolen works back in 1922. But much like the trunks that resurfaced three decades later at the Ritz, other bits of Hemingway's early materials have found a way to reemerge over the years. In 2003, 72-year-old Donald Stewart Jr. uncovered one of Hemingway's early short stories in a letter addressed to his father, Hollywood screenwriter and notorious bullfighter Donald Ogden Stewart Sr. The elder Stewart was the inspiration for the protagonist of Hemingway's enclosed tale. The short piece, written in 1924, demonstrated the author's unrefined and crude style. Unfortunately, it didn't give any clues as to where the rest of the lost manuscripts could have gone. In 2017, Hemingway's 100-year-old notebook turned up in Key West, Florida. The journal contained one of Hemingway's very first short stories ever written back in 1909, when the author was only 10 years old. The 14-page story shows Hemingway's early wanderlust as his character travels from the U.S. to Ireland and Scotland. The notebook had been forgotten in the storage room of a small canteen called Sloppy Joe's Bar. It was yet another instance of Hemingway's carelessness with his materials after the initial manuscript theft. Yet his lost suitcase from 1922 still remains a complete mystery. No one has any idea what could have happened to it after it left the train that afternoon at the Gare de Lyon. Although some modern-day authors have offered their own fictional theories. The Hemingway Thief by Sean Harris, tells the story of a fictional author who gets a hot tip about the location of Hemingway's mysterious suitcase. He follows a literary treasure map down to Mexico, where he mixes with a series of cartels and hitmen. The Hemingway Hoax by Joe Haldeman turns the mystery of the lost valise on its head by introducing the idea of time travel and multidimensional exploration to uncover the artifact. But these theories are conjured from the imagination of modern-day fiction authors. What really happened to his treasured works? The most likely scenario is that those manuscripts met an anticlimactic fate. After taking Hadley's unsupervised valise, whether by accident or on purpose, the new owner most likely opened the case to find that there was nothing of value inside. If only they had hung on to the property for another 50 years, the thief would have been able to make a fortune on the stolen goods. But seeing as Hemingway was an unknown when his manuscripts were taken, the works were as good as trash. At least that's how a thief might have seen it, and that's likely where the manuscripts ended up, in the trash. So Hemingway's suitcase is yet to be discovered, and it may no longer exist. Whether it lies at the bottom of a French landfill, in the basement of the Gare de Lyon, or in someone's attic waiting to be discovered, only time can tell. But one thing is certain. 
Hemingway's writing was profoundly affected by the theft. The moment of loss was wedged deep in his psyche. He coped by making his characters relive the same pain that he had suffered. And if his audience sympathized with his characters, then he was, in turn, gaining their emotional support. For example, in his novel, The Garden of Eden, fictional author David Bourne and his young wife Catherine spend a summer traveling through Europe. During their time in France, they meet a young woman named Marita and both fall in love with her, creating a seductive love triangle. But Catherine decides to burn all of David's stories and clippings out of spite. And when David discovers that the suitcase where his materials were once stored is empty, he too becomes empty inside. Another example comes from a deleted excerpt from 1945's Islands in the Stream. In this narrative, the protagonist, Roger, meets a young girl named Helena, who constantly asks to see his early work. He tells her that his earliest stories were lost, and when she asks how it happened, Roger refuses to go into detail. He's still stung by the pain of the memory. While the manuscript's disappearance was painful, this first critical loss taught Hemingway how to use his trauma as a tool to become a better author. In fact, Hemingway believed the loss and his talent were inextricably linked. He spoke about it in A Movable Feast, saying his previous works still had the lyric facility of boyhood that was as perishable and deceptive as youth was. In his semi-autobiographical story about his time in Africa, titled True at First Light, Hemingway surprisingly claims that it's rewarding having someone steal from you. The loss of these manuscripts was symbiotic with his later success. Hemingway may never have become the legendary writer that he was had he not been forced to let go of the past. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Gone for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Gone was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>